This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, frankly, I'm glad the children went out for Sunday school, because if this gospel text was made into a movie, it would be at least PG-rated. Some directors would probably make it an R-rated film. In the context of first century in Palestine, it is, frankly, a shocking story. Jesus already, by the seventh chapter of Luke, has developed a reputation. He eats with the wrong people. He hangs out with the wrong people. He doesn't seem to have any boundaries about who he spends his time with. In Luke 15, Pharisees are complaining about him because he eats with tax collectors and sinners. In Matthew 21, the Pharisees complained because the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed in him. Also in that same chapter, Jesus says to the Pharisees that the tax collectors and the prostitutes enter into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Jesus seems to make a habit of being with the wrong people. In John chapter 4, he shocks his disciples because they go into the town to find food, and when they come back, they discover that Jesus is talking to a woman. Not only is he talking to a woman, but she's a Samaritan woman. And not only is she a Samaritan woman, but she's had five husbands, and the man she has now is not her husband. In John chapter 8, Jesus refuses to condemn a woman brought to him him, who had been caught in the act of adultery. Let me be clear. Jesus was not easy on sin. He told the woman in John 8, after everyone else had left, to go and sin no more. He told the woman who had had multiple partners where she could find the true life that she was searching for. But Jesus' ministry was characterized by the welcome he gave to those usually unwelcome. Demoniacs, people whose disease made them unclean, notorious frauds, like Zacchaeus, people on the margins, the rejected, those who often found themselves alone because they were rejected. But Jesus healed and restored, and most of all, he assured these people of their release, their forgiveness, because of their faith, because of their trust. So it is in this story. Jesus was invited to a party. We have no story in the New Testament in which Jesus 
refuses to go to a party he's invited to. In fact, Jesus was accused once of being a glutton and a drunkard. He accepted invitations from all sorts of people. And this one, surprise, was a Pharisee. He, the, the man must have been of some importance because Luke knows his name. His name is Simon. People who are of some importance usually have their names remembered. And he actually does seem interested in Jesus. He calls Jesus rabbi, and he wonders to himself whether or not Jesus could be a prophet. He seems to be doubting it by the time that comes up in the story. But he does not treat Jesus as an honored guest. A really important guest would get his feet washed or would at least be given water with which to wash his feet. A really honored guest would be offered some olive oil to anoint their face so as to counteract the dust of the Palestinian first century roads. So Simon is interested in Jesus, but not sure that Jesus is all that special. But in contrast, there is an uninvited guest at this party. Now, this seems a little strange to us, but in the context of first century Palestine, it's not actually all that strange. If there was a rabbi invited to a banquet, doors would be left open so that people who were not actually invited could come and stand around the outside and listen to the teaching. So the doors being opened it seemed, left open the possibility that some unusual people might arrive. Let me set the scene. There's a group of people at a low table, very close to the floor. This is not Leonardo da Vinci with a high table with everybody standing behind it. This is a low table quite close to the floor. Those at the dinner would have their heads pointed in at the table. They'd be leaning on one arm and be able to dip their food with the other arm. Their feet would all be pointed out. That's the context in which we find ourselves. Jesus' feet are available, it seems. And into the party comes a woman who is described simply as a sinner. But we learn more about her as the story goes on. A sinner, by the way, uh, is usually, the term sinner usually meant that a person's lifestyle or their occupation rendered them unclean or habitually sinful in some way. Now, as Christians, we are used to thinking of everyone as sinners, thinking of ourselves as sinners, thinking of each person in in need of God's love and care and forgiveness. And Jews would not have denied this. Jews would have said that all have sinned, as Paul later does in the epistle to the Romans. They acknowledged that Adam and Eve's sin had tainted everyone in the world. And yet there were some who were labeled sinners because they were 
notorious or habitual or caught in a lifestyle that simply made them sinners all the time. Well, somehow this woman, who is a sinner and therefore known to be a sinner, comes into the banquet and gets close enough to have access to Jesus' feet. The first thing said about her, other than that she is a sinner, is that she has an alabaster flask or a jar of ointment. We don't hear very much about that. There are parallel stories to this one in other Gospels. Uh, Maybe this happened to Jesus or something similar happened to Jesus like this on other occasions. Uh, In a couple of the other Gospels, we are told of an alabaster jar of ointment that was worth 300 denarii. That's a year's wages. So a lot of money. Even an alabaster jar itself was expensive. Well, we don't know what she did because although it's mentioned she brings the ointment in, there's no mention of her doing anything with it. She seems willing, but perhaps unable to use this ointment on Jesus. Or perhaps she just becomes overcome and forgets that she even has it. Because at this point in the story, she breaks down weeping. She cries so much, in fact, that she anoints Jesus' feet. Not with oil, but with her tears. So after we hear about this oil, we're suddenly talking about Jesus' feet. Now, feet in the ancient world are considered unclean. I don't know if you remember an episode a few years ago while George Bush was president when he was at a press conference in the Middle East and somebody threw a shoe at him. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember that episode, but that is the worst possible insult you can uh, you can extend to anyone. In, in the Middle East, if if you have your legs crossed with your shoe pointed outward, it's an insult to your guest. Feet should be kept on the floor. But here she is, anointing Jesus' feet. John the Baptist, you you may remember, at one point said of Jesus that he was not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus' feet. The washing of feet, in fact, was something reserved for slaves. It was slaves' work. A disciple in the time of Jesus could be asked to do any kind of service for their rabbi, except caring for the rabbi's feet. That was too, too low a job, even for, uh, even for disciples of a rabbi. So this woman is doing slaves' work. She is giving up any status she might have had, although it seems she didn't have much, and making herself nothing for Jesus. She has no pride. And in fact, what she is doing would probably have been considered erotic. 
because feet were both unclean and related to sexuality in first century culture. Well, noticing that she has been anointing Jesus' feet, she makes it worse. She wipes his feet with her hair. This clinches the argument that is sometimes made about this woman, that she is probably a prostitute. Those were the only kinds of women in first century Palestine that would have let their hair down. There's a story of of a woman, a Jewish woman who had seven sons, and each of her seven sons had become a rabbi. And she was asked the reason for her good fortune. And her answer was, the roof, the, the ceiling of my house has not seen the hairs of my head. In other words, she's saying, even inside my house, I don't take my hair down, let alone in public. But this woman lets her hair down. She perhaps had a bad reputation to start with. She gives up any possibility of a good reputation by this action. In fact, although she acts in a way that is shocking to Simon and for those who have eyes to see to us, she is actually acting like a true follower of Jesus. She had the potential of giving up her property in her alabaster flask of ointment. She has given up her pride what she thinks of herself, and her reputation, what others think of her. Why has she done this? Well, Jesus makes it clear. Jesus knows that Simon is going to have some trouble with this whole episode. So Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. What is it, Rabbi? certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So one owed a year and a half's wages, the, the other owed a couple of months' wages. When they could not pay, he forgave them both. Which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, to whom he forgave more. He said to him, you have judged rightly. You see, the parable says to Simon, You have a debt. It may not be as big as the debt this woman has, but you have a debt. This woman had a big debt, but this woman knows her need. This woman knows that she is in need of forgiveness, that she is in need of God's love, that she is in need of a new life. So Jesus says, Simon, when I came here, you didn't give any water so that I could wash my feet. You didn't give me any oil to anoint my head, but she has not ceased to wash my feet and anoint them. And then Jesus says, Simon, her sins, which are many, 
are forgiven. That's the other shocking thing about this story. No first century rabbi would think to pronounce forgiveness of sins. That was a job that was done in the temple on the Day of Atonement. It was a job done only by the high priest once a year who announced God's forgiveness to those who were truly penitent. But here is Jesus usurping that authority and explaining that because of her love, because of her faith, it says in the last verse of the lesson, because of her trust, her sins are forgiven. If we have experienced the love of Jesus, if we have trusted in him, we are released, we are freed, freed from punishment, freed from guilt, freed from the power of sin, freed to serve God, freed to go in peace, which is what Jesus says this woman can now do. Your faith has made you well, or your faith has healed you, Jesus says. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I think it was in early 2013, I was preaching on the Johannine version of the anointing of Jesus in a little church made out of grass and sticks in Western Ethiopia. There were about 20 people present. And I talked about everything that the woman offered to Jesus, what she had, what others thought of her, what she thought of herself. Then it came time for the offering. Now, in this town of Ilia, as in most of our churches, the offering was taken by putting a mat on the floor at the front of the church, and people would bring their offering up and put it on the mat. Well, at the beginning of the offering, only three or four people came up, and they came up with one burr notes. Burr, a burr is the smallest denomination of money in Ethiopia. It's worth about a couple of cents. So three or four burr were on the mat. Then nobody came up for a few minutes for a couple of minutes. Then a woman came up and stood in front of the mat and took off her headband. Her, her headscarf, and put it on the mat. All the women wore headscarves. Then another woman came up and took off the beads she had around her neck, which are usually given to a woman when she's married, and she put her beads on the mat. Then the rest of the women in the congregation all came up and put either their headscarf or their beads on the mat. They gave what they had. They realized they had nothing and that their action was only symbolic. But they were giving themselves to Jesus. Today, when we come to the Eucharist, I, inv I invite you to bring yourself to Jesus, to bring whatever you have, whoever you are, to him, 
bring it to the altar rail. Present yourself to him and ask him to give his life to you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us. Sinners that we are. That no matter who we are or what we've done, you care for us. And you desire us to be free. To be released. To be healed. Move in our hearts this day, we pray. And as we leave this place, fill us with your Holy Spirit to bring your healing love to a world deeply in need. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.